All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, talking to you from the borough of Queens in New York City. This is the 31st day of May, 2022. Before I talk about today's show, let me remind you that on June 11th and 12th, I will be participating in the Metals Investor Forum in Toronto at the Delta Hotel. The, uh, the event starts on uh, both days with breakfast at 8 o'clock and ends up with cocktails at 6 o'clock. Uh, there is no charge to attend, but you do need to sign up beforehand. And to do that, you can go to metalsinvestorforum.com, metalsinvestorforum.com. Myself and several other newsletter writers will be uh, bringing, inviting companies that, they, that we all think are among the best that we cover. Um, they're mostly all gold or silver mining companies and uh, some some very exciting large-scale projects that are being uncovered. Uh, I think you, if you're in this sector and are, are investing in it, you certainly uh, would find it of interest. So uh, it's metalsinvestorforum.com. Go there to sign up for it. I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more uh, one of the one of the more well listened to shows on the Voice America Business Channel. And um, if you like, uh, certainly like to hear from you, send along your questions. Uh, and comments, whatever they may be, to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We also want to thank our sponsors, making this show economically viable. Today's sponsors are Irving Resources, Noble Resources, El Oro Resources, Core Asset Corp., Timberline Resources, Lion One Metals, SK Mining, and Reina Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Why the Risk of Hyperinflation Is, or at Least May Be, Real. Doug Nolan, Dr. Quentin Henning, and Anthony Santelli return as guests this week. In his May 21st Credit Weekly Bulletin, Doug Nolan wrote, and I quote, Rather than subprime mortgages as the system's weak link, today it's subprime corporate credit. History suggests today's festering issues in credit derivatives and structural finance will prove woefully worse than anyone today appreciates. And there is little policymakers can do to remedy the situation. The cycle has changed. The amount of stimulus necessary to one, uh, to one more time resuscitate bubble dynamics would risk hyperinflation. Doug will provide information in support of his concerns uh, that the hyperinflationary risk in this credit cycle is very real. He'll be with me in the second half of today's show. After our first commercial break, Dr. Quentin Henning will join me to give us an update on SK Mining's consolidated SK exploration project uh, in British Columbia. It's certainly something that is uh, evolving very into a very large-scale discovery. 
Um, and uh, actually, their exploration program starts uh, tomorrow, June 1st. Massive credit creation is the main cause of surging increases in the cost of living, but uh, policymakers are doing their best to exacerbate a shortage of one of the most crucial life-sustaining commodities, namely energy. Blue, fi- Blue Biofuels is a company that has developed a new and improved technology system uh, that converts virtually any plant material, grasses, wood, paper, farm waste, yard waste, forestry products, fruit casings, nutshells, and the cellulic uh, portion of municipal solid waste into sugars and substantially into biofuels without the use of enzymes or liquid acids. We call this, the, the, the company calls this the CTS 2.0 process, where CTS stands for cellulose to sugar. The cellulose is converted into sugar, lignin. Uh, the sugar is further converted into bioethanol and other biofuels. And I'm really happy to tell you that uh, Anthony Santelli is uh, with me to, to tell you a little bit more about this company. Blue Biofuels trades over-the-counter, B-I-O-F. Uh, it's 278 million shares, uh, selling at about 20 cents earlier today, if giving it a market cap around $56 million. Welcome, Anthony, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate that introduction. So, Well, it. Uh, I, I, yeah, I wonder just just uh, as as uh, succinctly as possible, tell our listeners about Blue Biofuels, what it has that other producers of ethanol don't have, and maybe a little bit about the economics. Well, yeah. For, first of all, our process is uh, 100% environmentally friendly. Uh, it's carbon neutral, um, and uh, so it's it's 100% recycled fuel. Um, and the other elements as well, the catalysts and whatnot, are also recycled. So there's no toxic anything that gets put into the atmosphere. That's one major positive benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we can convert uh, 100% of the cellulosic material. It's a recent announcement as of the end of last year. Um, <clears throat> and so this, this is significant. Um, we've optimized the parameters necessary for conversion in a matter of minutes, and I don't think that any other company has, has done that before as well. So we're, we're in the process now of scaling up. Um, we've recently announced a partnership with a company called KR Comarec. Uh, they build large-scale industrial systems, and they're, you know, the plan is for them to do that for us as well. We All expect right. to receive uh, a first system from them, uh, not a full scale, but a smaller scale this summer. Um, and we're going to begin testing that, and then if that works well, um, we'll have you know a, a larger system ordered after that. Um, uh-huh. Just a, a, another another word about uh, about scaling, because this is mm-hmm. often talked about in in, in this industry. Sure. Uh, a larger system that can run at about 500 times, let's say, the uh, a smaller system, only costs about 10 times as much. Mm-hmm. This is because the smallest system has to have every component, every control down to the last screw is basically the same as uh-huh. the larger system, okay, only uh-huh. smaller. So we expect very large economies of scale uh, as we ramp up, and this is why uh, we believe that we can produce biofuels from cellulosic materials at a lower cost than uh, anyone else who's tried this before. Other processes, they use expensive enzymes that take longer to make the conversion, and they don't have the same economies of scale. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's something about the uh, the economics of the pro- of the uh, of the process. What about capital costs? 
Anthony? Yeah, well, well capital costs, uh, as I said, you know, we, we, we're not announcing exactly what you know the capital okay. costs uh, that we anticipate they're going to be. But let's just let's just say if we have a 60 million gallon ethanol plant, okay. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the renewable fuel credits. I don't know if anybody, if, if too many of your listeners know this, but sure, the government offers renewable fuel credits for anybody who can produce renewable fuels for the transportation industry. Mm-hmm. And they give different credits for different kinds of, of fuels. Uh, cellulosic uh, uh, biofuels earns what's called a D3 RIN, which currently earns $3.40 a gallon. That's on top of the price of the ethanol itself. Mm-hmm. So that alone, if we have a 60 million gallon plant, uh, we'd earn about $200 million you know, dollars per year just from the renewable fuel credits. And, you know, we expect that that will be more than sufficient to pay off the capital costs in, in a single year. Uh-huh. So operating so costs, um, I guess, plus you got that $3.40 credit from the government. How, how essential is that to making the economics of this work? Well, it, it, it's nice to have that cover the capital costs, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> of course, everybody wants to know the answer. What's, you know, what's the operating cost that you're... Are you keeping yeah. the corn? Corn, most ethanol comes from corn, right? Yeah. And so what I like to tell people is, is this. Right now, corn is over $7 uh, a bushel. That translates, you know, at 39.4 bushels per ton into about $275 per ton of input costs into producing the ethanol. Mm-hmm. Our feedstock is estimated to cost anywhere between zero, i.e. someone else's waste that they're, they're just getting rid of, to around $35 a ton. So we start off with a very huge cost advantage as compared to corn. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it's going to cost more to convert cellulose into sugar than it does corn. I mean, you bite into corn, you can taste the sugar. You bite into a piece of wood, you don't taste the sugar, right? So it's, it's going to cost more at that point. But we don't believe that it's going to cost so much more that it's going to overcome the you know, initial massive cost advantage that we have by having cheaper inputs. But of course, mm-hmm. that's you know that's that's the million dollar question, right? So we, we we don't know exactly what our operating costs are going to be as of yet. Sure. Um, but that's that's the upside that the investor gains. You know, um, if we knew that now, we'd be a multi billion dollar company, right? Mm-hmm. So, but our market cap, as you said, is about fifty six million, and and you know that's the upside if we succeed. Um, you are going to. Uh, I think you're going to. Be, you indicated to me you're going to be raising some capital. Uh, I guess uh, a private placement for accredited investors, perhaps. Is that yeah, the route you're yes. going? Yeah. Yes, we do have a private placement that's uh, that's ongoing right now. It's uh, it, it is mostly filled. Um, so it, I mean, if any if anybody want if any of your listeners want to participate, they can they can contact me um, by email at anthony at bluebiofuels dot com. Uh, it's anthony at bluebiofuels dot com for details on on the private placement. Or, of course, if they want to buy in the open market, the stock symbol is just B-I-O-F, as in Frank, B-I-O-F. All right. Very good. Uh, well, we'll be watching this closely, Anthony. I think it's a very interesting story, certainly now with the energy prices going to the moon. And Lord knows where they're going to go before uh, they subside. There's a lot of uh, things we're going to be talking about later in the show that might have, um, you know, to give some indication of that. I know you would have your views, too. Perhaps we can have you back on to talk about that sometime in the future. Uh, But I do want to – anything else you'd like to just just in closing to say? 
Well, you know, I think our technology is very promising, and you know, with with the uh, threatened global food shortage, with the you know war in Ukraine, uh, it would be nice if we uh, if we were in production right now. But you know, you know, maybe in a couple of years uh, we can we can solve those kinds of problems. Very good. Uh, okay, very good, Anthony. Thank you so much. Um, we'll look to, to keep up with this story into the future. Thank you. All right, Thank folks, you. we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me. Uh, give us an update on SK Mining. Company's starting its uh, 2022 drill program tomorrow. It's a very exciting story, so I hope you'll stick around and listen to what Dr. Henning has to say. We'll be right back. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQX is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back, Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really glad to have Dr. Quentin Henning with me once again. Today, he's here to give us an update on SK Mining. Uh, that is a sponsor to this show as well. SK Trades uh, in Toronto under ESK. You can tr- buy it down here in the States under ESKYF. 169.4 million shares, $1.68 in U.S. money, giving you a market cap of around $285 million in U.S. funds. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Henning. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Dave. Always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure to hear from you, no doubt about that. Now, I want to know, uh, maybe for the sake of people who aren't familiar with SK, I think our regular listeners to the show are familiar with it probably, but we get new people from time to time. Maybe just give the overall investment thesis for this story. Absolutely. That's a good place to start. Uh, SK Mining has a very large land package, about 520-odd square kilometers, that are immediately adjacent to the old SK Creek mine. 
which is now under the control of Skeena, Skeena Resources. Uh, SK Creek, uh, if you look back in history, was one of the highest grade mines ever operated on planet Earth. It was a high grade, what we call VMS, vulcanogenic mass sulfide deposit. And uh, it was discovered in the late 1980s. It was uh, at a time when gold wasn't really trading all that flash. Uh, it was, you know, I think when the deposit was found, I think gold was trading around 300 to 320 an ounce yeah. or something in that range. But uh, it, it sure made a lot of uh, noise in the market back in that time. That This was one of the most amazing discoveries really ever made in, in Canada. Uh there was a lot of question about what it was when they first drilled it. Nobody quite understood the geology. They didn't understand what it was. you know. But after a few years, they recognized it was a BMS deposit, one of these seafloor black smoker-type deposits. Mm-hmm. And in um, one of the people in particular who, who helped define that was Thomas Monarchy, who's part of our team here at SK Mining. Tom, Thomas is a professor at the Colorado School of Mines. And he did his dissertation at SK Creek. Um, SK Creek, you know, is a, a, a modest scale total production. It's about 3.3 million ounces of gold and about 160 million ounces of silver, but extremely high grade. It was the average grade was about 46 grams per ton uh, life of mine, and the the silver grade was about 2.2 kilograms of ton uh, <laughs> per. Yeah, so you know, life of mine. So you can you can see it was an extremely rich deposit. Now, the the deposit that was mined by Homestake and the Barrick back in the old days uh, had a lot of lower grade, not low grade, but lower grade material or in and around it. So, uh, Skeena has presently d- drilled to find, I think, on the order of five or six million ounce gold equivalent. Wow. Wow. Uh, but, you know, at, at lower grade. So, we'll call it, you know, four or five gram uh, gold equivalent. Um, but it, it, it will fall in an open pit. It's a big system that that can definitely uh, produce a lot of gold, probably a few hundred thousand ounces. I think they've done a, a pre-feasibility level study that generates several hundred thousand ounces, maybe four or five hundred thousand ounce gold equivalent per year for a life of mine that's uh, over 10 years. So it's it's a good project, um, but we've got the rest of the system here. We got we got the entire district of prospective rocks for these VMS deposits. We, you know, when VMS form on the seafloor. They tend to form in clusters, uh, and each deposit might be, you know, if anywhere from a few uh, million tons up to even sometimes 10-plus million tons or tens of millions of tons. And w- what's always, you know, kind of been a mystery at SK Creek or this region is you have a great deposit at SK Creek. Where's the rest of these things? You know, where, where's the, the cluster of VMS, if you will? And, you know, we hold probably 85% of the prospective ground for this style of, of deposits. So we're, we're out there exploring for SK Creek analogs, and we've we've already found two, TV and Jeff, and they've grown dramatically just in the past year, a couple of years of drilling, um, and now we're hitting it hard. This year, we're getting out, and we're, we're going to try to find some more. Yeah, and the announcement just came this morning of uh, the program, the uh, 2022 drill program. Uh, you have a somewhat short season. It's up there in British Columbia, but you'll start. I guess this year is starting as early as as any year. The way from what I can uh, see, is you're getting an early start uh, compared to some years, anyway. From what I can uh, from what I can discern. Uh, now, you you what? Talk to us a little bit about this program. I know that a good part of it is going to have to do with the TV 
and Jeff that you just uh, referred to. And I think there's some indication or some belief that these two, that are there four or five kilometers apart, may be connected. Yes, that's uh, the working hypothesis. We did a lot of work last year between the two areas and then even to the north and to the south where they extend along strike. And we've defined a quarter of about five or six kilometers in length in which we're seeing really good soil samples that tell us there's a lot more mineralization. Uh, they did find rock samples and some evidence, you know, strong evidence of more uh, of this style of mineralization along strike. So these systems are likely connected at some some level. We don't know exactly how yet because we got to drill it, but we have a hunch that the the overall strike extent of the TV Jeff area is at least at least five kilometers. It's open in both directions. So, and what we're going to do this year is do a, a very systematic program of drilling fences. Uh, so lines of holes, and these holes would be oriented. The, the holes themselves are oriented from east to west, so they angle back towards the mm-hmm. west. And we drill fences, which means uh, you know one hole after another, so that we make sure that if any, any mineralization is kind of running through an area, we the overlapping fences make sure that you, you actually see that in, in your drilling. So we're going to you know cast a big net, if you will, across this area and, and try to find the extensions, the connections between TB and Jeff, the extensions... And, and perhaps even new deposits. You know, this is a bit uh, of a third-dimensional game, too, because some of these deposits occur in different parts of the stratigraphy. So we know, for example, <clears throat> that the Jeff system ties in with the lower part of the TV system. And we don't know yet, but will soon, if there's mineralization that equates to the upper TV system over Jeff and then vice versa. If there's uh, mineralization that equates to the to the Jeff system over a TV, but uh, we're going to find out. We'll, we'll have we have a lot of drilling, thirty thousand meters this year. A lot of it will be focused along this corridor, but we're going to test new areas too. We've got, uh, for example, Excelsior, which is on the west side of the anticline. It's immediately uh, over the top of the SK anticline from TV and Jeff, and we're going to test areas that again showed up as very strong soil anomalies in last year's program. They look like basically TV Jeff style anomalies, uh, but just dipping on on uh, west on the west side of the anticline. So you know, think of it like a rainbow. You know, where if TV and Jeff are the pot in one side of the rainbow, then we're going to go over and test the other side of the rainbow. Uh, and then up at uh, Scarlet Ridge, we're going to hit that area very hard. That was an area we found late last year, uh, really encouraging mineralization in the field, strong signs of extensive VMS. Uh, system in that location. We did find historic data uh, from mm. a company called Granges, which uh, drilled some holes there right around the time of the SK Creek discovery. They actually hit some high grade, uh, but never followed up. And and this area just looks ripe for for another you know yet another discovery of this, these VMS deposits. Uh, we also have a lot of work planned down at C10 and Vermilion. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the th- big pushes this year is we have crews hired to to go out and do a lot of prospecting level activities, mm-hmm. uh, which is really important in that period prior to drilling. We want these crews to go out and do mapping and sampling and identify uh, you know, the, the best areas to test with the drill hole later this season. So we've got a big, big push on that front. Yeah. Well, 30,000-meter drill program from what I read, and uh, how much of that will be devoted to TV and Jeff? 
Yeah, about two-thirds goes to TV and Jeff, and then the remaining third goes to testing uh, these new targets that will, will pop up around Excelsior, Scarlet Ridge, maybe even down at C10 and Vermilion. Uh, we're going to we're gonna hit this pretty hard this year. And then, look, the, the other aspect, I think uh, it, it kind of moved slow last year due to COVID, but that road that we've oh, agreed yeah. to work on with, with uh, Seabridge is, is supposed to be uh, under commencement here shortly. And that road takes us right past the the old Sibulu target area. We we didn't do any drilling there last year because it makes more sense to wait and uh, until the road passes that area, so that we have easier access and we can drill that more cheaply. So we put that target uh, not not because it's not geologically important, but simply because we can drill it cheaper once the road is in. We put it down the list a bit, but uh, we do anticipate that road being completed this season, that first segment at least. Yeah, as I recall, um, that SIB is more to the north on the on the whole consolidated property. Yes, uh, SIB Lulu is is actually on the west side of the anticline, uh-huh. and it's, it's a long strike, so a long strike to the uh, south southwest from the old SK Creek mine. It's right. part of part of that system. Yes, right. Oh, a lot of a lot of exciting things going on. What about um, you know? Well, this is a gold silver rich polymetallic there's some other base metals in there as well have has there been some metallurgical studies done on this quentin uh we've done a lot of petrography here recently identifying the, the ore minerals and how they they're situated in the rock and we will be doing some met work out of the samples that we collect from drilling this year mm-hmm. but but one of the one of the advantages we have already jay is that uh the metallurgy has been done extensively at the SK Creek deposit, and from what we can see, the the samples, the material that we've collected and studied under the microscope from our project resembles very strongly resembles that at, at uh, the old SK Creek mine. So Skeena uh, have done a lot of metallurgy already, mm-hmm. and I, I think that you know just my my instinct is that uh, the results we get from any metallurgical work we do will will be very similar, you know, to the Skeena's work. So we're we're very confident this this should be able to be processed and generate high, very high value product. Do you see the TV Jeff uh, target? Is that likely to be an underground mine if it becomes uh, a mine? It, it's always possible. I mean, look at the original SK Creek deposit. That was a very high grade underground mine. Um, if we find that high, like we we've got some really nice high grade intercepts in both locations. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, and Jeff it tends to be more on the gold end of the spectrum. You know, but we've seen a lot of bonanza grades there, and then at TV, uh, we've seen more silver actually. So we've got some really high grade silver. You know, often thousands of grams per ton uh, silver, especially up in that upper VMS that was found late last year. So uh, yeah, there's there's ob- obviously there's always that potential, that dream of finding a, an a- absolute replicate of the the original SK Creek mine that w- would likely be an underground mine. But the, you know, the the more likely outcome is that. The big, big system here, this five-kilometer corridor, mm-hmm. and in Jeff will be akin to to the Skeena uh, system that they're they're now developing. Uh, you know, and, and the footprint of TV Jeff, importantly, is about two times the size of um, mm-hmm. the one that Skeena's um, tackling at the moment. Yeah, so maybe at depth, there's something richer, possibly. You don't I, know. Yeah, you don't know, but uh, you know, these, yeah. the, the systems in this area seem to generate that very high-grade, uh, you know, kind of. You know, really juicy style of mineralization. So, all deep. right. Well, 
I, I take it the company is financed for this drill program. Yes, right. we got, uh, we raised uh, money. I think back in March or April, uh, and the, so the company has I think around nine or ten right now. Um, they have a lot of warrants coming in. Um, in fact, I think a lot of that money is actually in in place at this point. So, and I haven't caught up with how much warrants have been exercised, but I think a, a lot of it is. So, I think yeah, the the funding's all all in place at this point. All right. Um, all right, so I guess in, uh, just people should just be watching for drill results. Anything else? Um, drill results, of course, are going to be quite a few weeks away yet, but anything else they should keep their eyes on for this? Yeah, look, we're, we'll give updates as we as we work on this. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to see mineralization, uh, mm-hmm. this mineralization. So we'll, we'll be able to talk about that and, and talk about the progress the prospecting crews are, are having out in the field. I think uh, I'm really excited to watch them you know, get into these areas like Scarlet Ridge and Excelsior and st- stir up some new targets. So we'll talk, as, as we develop our new targets from this data, uh, we'll be talking about that. Very good. We'll fire it up. <laughs> yeah, we'll cer- certainly be uh, keeping our eyes on it. This is one I'm covering in my newsletter, of course, and also uh, it is a sponsor of the show. And uh, not unimportantly to me, I own a few shares myself, so I'm I'm quite interested. Thank you so much, Quentin, for being with us again. Uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you, Jay. All righty, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Doug Nolan will be with me. He's the portfolio manager for the tactical short strategy at McIlvaney Wealth Management. Doug is concerned about, you know, most people think it's not going to happen here, hyperinflation, but he sees the, the potential uh, dangers of that happening. So this is a very important, um, a very important discussion. I think we're going to have you want to stick around and hear what Doug has to say. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Reina Gold is a newly listed company trading on the OTCQB under the symbol REYGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol REYG. Its flagship asset, La Gloria, is a 24,000-hectare district-scale property in the prolific Mojave Sonora Megashear in Mexico, between La Herradura, Mexico's biggest gold mine by Fresnillo, and El Shonate mine by Alamos Gold. La Gloria has very high-grade sampling and is in the first phase of a 10,000-meter drill program. The technical team is led by Dr. Peter McGaw, co-founder of Mag Silver, and Doug Kirwin, former VP of Ivanhoe Mines. Learn more at reinagold.com. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka Project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. 
If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back, Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Doug Nolan. He is the portfolio manager for the Tactical Short Strategy at McIlvaney Wealth Management, and Doug was previously involved as portfolio manager at the Federated Equity Management Company, where he was in charge of the Prudent Bear Fund and the Prudent Global Income Fund. That was from 1999 to 2008. And prior to that, he also worked uh, for short biased hedge funds from 1990 to 1998. He writes an excellent market summary every weekend. It's available, I believe, and uh, it's a summary and an analysis of the, of the events of the past week and uh, sort of keeps people up to date with where the markets are and where, uh, where he believes the markets are headed. Uh, and it's really, I think, very important. If you're a serious investor, you'll want to check this out. Uh, you need to go to Credit Bubble Bull- creditbubblebulletin.blogspot.com, creditbubblebulletin.blogspot.com. Uh, it's uh, it's free of charge. I went there and looked at a couple of the last issues uh, over the last weeks in, in preparation for our discussion with Doug today. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jay. Uh, really nice to be back with you, and thanks uh, for, you know, I'm feeling old when you talk about my, you know, <laughs> we're in the, my, my history. I forget how, how old I'm getting. So. Well, we're, we're in the same boat, Doug, and I, because I, I can remember the days when you worked with David Tice back at the Prudent uh-huh. Bear Fund, uh, and that was a few, well, a couple of decades ago or so, right? So, yeah, time does Time does pass uh, quickly. That's for sure. It's that's what, and the older you get, the faster it goes. So, and now things really seem to be speeding out of control almost. And I wanted to. I titled today's show, "Why the Risk of Hyperinflation May Be Real." And I sort of picked that up from a recent. Um, well, I think maybe it was a May twenty first Credit Weekly Bulletin. Uh, you wrote, and I quote: "Rather than subprime mortgages as a system's weak link." Today, it's subprime corporate credit. History suggests today's festering issue in credit derivatives and structural finance will prove woefully worse than anyone today appreciates, and there is little policymakers can do to remedy the situation. The cycle has changed. The amount of stimulus necessary one more time to resuscitate bubble dynamics would risk hyperinflation. End of quote. So, um, I guess I'd like to start out by asking you, what about what about the corporate credit? How has it changed? And, and paint us a picture of corporate credit and why you're concerned about it. Sure, Jay. Let me. I'll go all the way back to the early '90s. Um, try to do this quickly. So mm-hmm. we had, you know, it, we had an impaired banking system, and back then it was the banking system through lending that drove credit growth. Well, the banking system was impaired, and that's when Alan Greenspan started to accommodate. The, the expansion of market-based credit, mm-hmm. uh, asset-backed securities, corporate debt, MBS derivatives, all of that, that took on a life of its own. So my concern right now is we have so much marketable debt out there, especially uh, you know uh, high-yield debt, corporate debt, um, and this is very problematic in that 
you can have a run on ETFs and, and different holders that own this debt. And it's very different than the old cycles where it was the banks that were sitting on these problem loans. Now they're in these different instruments in the market where people can can liquidate and even panic out of them. So it creates a very unstable backdrop. We saw this in March of 2020 mm -hmm. uh, with the pandemic, how quickly things can unwind. We certainly saw it back in 2008. Um, and my concern today is previous crisis episodes, central banks could slash interest rates, do QE. Uh, if they needed to, they would do trillions of QE as we saw in the pandemic response. That type of response today is very problematic because of today's inflation. So that's why this is a, a bit of a unique environment here. Yeah. So, so that's why the stimulus required this time. I'm wondering if some of these credit instruments in you know, high yield debt and so forth, if there might not be a liquidity problem with some of these things. I mean, if everybody tries to get out the door at the same time, is that a concern? Sure. And and think of it this way, where we've had these bubbles, and that's been you know, my analytical focus now for 30 years. So we, we've had these various bubbles, and when one bubble bursts, then the Fed is, has created a new bigger bubble. And that's the way, the way these things work. We had the tech bubble, then the mortgage finance bubble, and then what I call the global government finance bubble that unfolded after the 2008 crisis. The bigger these bubbles are, when they burst or when they're bursting, you need a huge response to kind of resuscitate the bubble. And that's what we saw with the pandemic, where it was $5 trillion in two years. Oh. So, so these, these types of measures only make the bubble bigger and lead to the next rescue has to be bigger. And that's why I'm saying today in a bu bubble burst in environment, it would take massive QE but that QE today is much more, uh, would, would drive uh, consumer prices much more than they have in the past because of these, you know, strong inflationary forces we see throughout the economy. Uh, are you, the, the inflationary forces, are, do you see them mo mostly, I guess it's a combination of both the supply side and the demand side. We're seeing the restrictions, of course, because uh, in, in the past decades, we've seen the global economy growing we've seen more globalization now we're seeing a restriction of it for various geopolitical reasons or what have you um where, where do you see both sides of it then is uh, problematic i suppose it's the stimulus the money that's pumped into the system uh that we've seen pumped into the system the last number of well especially since covid uh and now the war in the ukraine and and various other issues uh, geopolitical issues china doesn't seem to be all that interested in exporting things they seem to shut down Beijing, with they have a couple of uh, COVID, uh, COVID incidents, um, and uh, what do you make of it? Uh, th th this seems to be a lot different in a lot of ways, in addition to what you just talked about, from my perspective. Sure, Jane. The way I look at it, from my analytical framework, we've we're transitioning into a new cycle. We've had this previous cycle that's gone on for a few decades. That cycle was an experiment in monetary policy, economic structure. It was a huge experiment in finance with all these new instruments. Um, that cycle, you had fin financial assets performed extremely well. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge bias. You know, as long as they performed well, all the finance would flow into financial assets. 
It led to market bubbles, you know, asset inflation, all of that. But it also helped contain inflation somewhat because it pulled in all the excess liquidity. Right. Now I'm seeing the cycle is turned. Globalization is turned down. That was part of the last cycle. Uh-huh. We've seen we're seeing supply constraints, right? We're seeing changes in psychology by workers, by corporations. Uh, there, you know, p- people now want to be paid more. They want to charge more. Uh, there's more bias to to own hard assets, right? So there's demand for a lot of things globally. Not to mention. Uh, right now, the, the the war in Ukraine, grain shortages, potential food crisis, uh, the end of just-in-time inventory. There's all types of dynamics now that have started in this new cycle, and I think the new cycle favors hard ass or yes, hard assets over financial assets, mm-hmm. which creates. And this gets a little complicated. I'm sorry, but it creates a, a a different dynamic where if the Fed adds liquidity, it's not just going to go into financial assets like right, it has in right. the past. Now it's going to go into real things and only make the inflation issue uh, more acute. Mm-hmm. Well, what to, to what extent do you think that Mr. Putin's recent activity or actions of requiring payments in rubles for natural gas uh, might be playing a role in this, uh, causing people to think in terms that, well, money isn't just something that's created out of you know, keystrokes of a computer, but in fact, it needs to have something behind it. And we also see, historically, we see uh, financial asset prices so high compared to where they've been historically relative to these kinds of commodities that you have to have to stay alive. Sure. And I'm, I'm going to lean on the bubble analytical framework a little bit more here. Uh-huh. When the bubble is expanding, when credit is expanding, when the economies are expanding, asset prices are expanding... This is this is a dynamic where you know you, you get a lot of cooperation, integration globally. The view is the pie is getting bigger. So if we yep. work together, we can all do better. Mm-hmm. Well, at the end of the cycle, that starts to fray. You start to see friction, tension in these relationships. When the cycle turns and you see disintegration, a breakdown of relationships and conflict. I think that's where we are in the cycle. Now we're seeing that with Putin, we're seeing that with China. These old relationships are breaking down. The whole dollar reserve system is is changing now. It, it's going to be a system for, you know, uh, half the half the world and then the other half of the world will, will go with China and Russia and their own system. So uh, I definitely think this type of a, an arrangement is, you know, pro hard assets. Uh, uh, you know, Russia right now, their currency has been relatively strong because the perception is they have crude and oil and resources to back their currency, I guess. Uh, and there's going to be problems for for currencies that, that are continue to be unstable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, a, you know, just completely different dynamics than, than we've been witnessing for, for quite some time that are unfolding now. To what extent do you think the market, the generally, uh, you know, investors in stocks, uh, I get the sense that most people sort of think that the Fed will always be there. It's been there, you know, we go back, you and I, uh, several several decades. And every time, you know, we think the shoes, the, you know, the wheels are going to come off the, of everything, they find a way to keep it going. And, you know, starting with Greenspan, the put, Greenspan put, uh, every Federal Reserve chairman since then seems to have had a Greenspan put uh, or their own put. And so, the, you know, they'll always come to the rescue. 
don't you think that mentality is still with us to a great extent? People still believe that that the Fed can deliver once more. Absolutely, yeah. The, you know, the view is the Fed put is is alive and well. It may be a little bit lower strike price, you know, a little lower. Uh, in the yeah. But the, and Jay, you know, we, we've witnessed this, right? It started with Greenspan tinkering with interest rates to get mm-hmm. the markets to do what he wanted, and and after a while, that didn't that wore off. So it's an aggressive rates slashing, and then bailouts, and then they start QE in two thousand eight. With a trillion dollars, and then do you know do another two and a half trillion, and then we get to to uh, 2020, and they unleash five trillion. The problem today is, as I mentioned, these bailouts have to be bigger. But the problem is, central banks now have to focus on consumer price inflation for the first time in decades, and it's a serious concern. It's a concern for them. They see the hardship for the American people. They see the pressure uh, from politicians. So it's a different dynamic now. It's different. They just can't print trillions uh, without uh, pretty obvious consequences. So I think the stock market, uh, they, they're not as attuned to, to the Fed's dilemma as I think they probably should be. Uh, I think the Fed put comes later than usual. And importantly, it comes in a lot smaller size. If you remember back to uh, March of 2020, they start with these QE announcements. I think it was like 500 billion. Well, that didn't work. The markets continued to unravel. Okay, another 500 billion. And you know, they just kept ratcheting it up until they reversed the markets. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to come out and say, okay, $2 trillion. And, and people are gonna say, wait a minute, we have eight and a half percent CPI inflation, what is the bond market going to say about this if the Fed starts aggressively printing more money when inflation is already this elevated? And I think at the end of the somewhere, the bond market, the old, you know, the so-called bond vigilantes are going to come out and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, enough of the QE here, enough of the QE, especially if if it just gravitates into into uh, higher consumer prices. So I think they're really, uh, they've stretched it, they they over uh, overexpanded aggressively in, in 2020 and, and now they'll pay the price by, by not having a lot of uh, uh, tools in their toolkit to deal with the problems that are unfolding. Do you think the bond vigilantes have started to stir or wake up a little bit? Um, <laughs> uh, Maybe a little bit, but uh, you know the ten-year yield at uh, two eighty-five is is not really uh, the the type of response I would expect from bond vigilantes in this type of an environment. I think the bonds get really nervous if they start to hear the Fed talking about big QE programs mm-hmm. in a crisis environment. If the Fed starts releasing these, you know, having these press releases talking about big QE, I think at that point, I think the bond market protests. Um, the bond market, Jay, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of back 2007 to early 2008, where even in 2008, we had, you know, the oil price spike and we had, uh, you know, significant consumer, consumer price inflation, but the bond markets weren't that concerned because the bond market sensed these uh, fragile bubbles, 
mortgage mm-hmm. finance and different things, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bond market anticipated uh, aggressive monetary ease, and that's one of the reasons yields didn't go up. I think there's a little bit of that going on now with bond yields are so low because because of the bu- bubbles in the U.S., the bubble bubbles in China and globally. Uh, they, th- you know, the bond market senses that inflation uh, is not going to be an, an ongoing problem because these bubbles were burst. Uh, but I... I think the policy responses to bursting bubbles will will definitely concern the bond market. So I I would imagine you know the Fed really wants to have a soft landing. They want to have they want to bring us down to some some stability level, inflation's down, and we can go back to very low interest rates and as if that would cause the economy to grow. I mean I think there's other issues, but um, what. I mean, the chances are not very good historically of the Fed being able to orchestrate a soft landing. Um, they're going to try, I guess. I guess they're they're trying. They're doing a lot of jawboning. It's a lot of talking. Probably trying to get the psychology changing. I don't know how do you, how do you how do you think they're going to approach? How are they approaching this right now? And uh, do you think they're going to err on the side of too much? Uh, restriction and then all of a sudden things swirl out of control, uh, go down the drain, uh, and then they have to go back to some massive QE program. Is that is that how you see it, or what do you, what do you think the best bet is? Well, right now I think it's a lot of inflation uh, bark and no bite. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot of talk, and they think with this talk, it's you know it's similar to the Greenspan tinkering, where they, a lot of talk it'll bring. Uh, you know, the stock market down and things will cool off, bring home prices down and things will cool off. I just think this inflation is going to prove uh, resilient, very difficult to control. Again, a new cycle, a new cycle. So I think they're going to have a real dilemma because they don't want to slam on the brakes, right? They don't want to because they know the markets, you know, the markets will not take that well. Mm-hmm. There will be bursting bubbles everywhere. So mm-hmm. they, they want to kind of gingerly bring this thing down, the so-called soft landing. I don't think that cuts it as far as fighting inflation. I don't think it cuts it. it right now, inflation is so strong and it's global that if they want to bring it down, they, they're going to have to get very close to slamming on the brakes. Mm-hmm. They're gonna, you know, and, and I don't think they want to do that. So my guess is inflation is persistent and at some point, again, I think the bond market's going to force them to be more aggressive uh, with with their um, not only with their with their uh, rate increases, but with their QT, reducing the balance sheet. And none of this, I think, goes over well with with risk markets. So it's it's a real dilemma to have. What are the chances that um, one man, Chairman Powell, could do what Volcker did in 1980 and it's sort of funny because I think almost everybody discounts that that possibility. I remember talking to Ron Paul about this decades ago and Mark Faber at a dinner in San Francisco, and I'll, both of them just sort of laughed at the notion then already. And things are far, far more worse, far, far worse now than they were back at that time. Um, and yet I hear Danielle DiMartino Booth the other day uh, on an, uh, in an interview that she did suggesting that Chairman Powell orchestrated his re a renomination as Fed chairman, exactly so he could be that tough guy that would actually bring things back in line uh, with the tough medicine that's required. Uh, to me, that just seems awfully far-fetched. Um, but what are your thoughts? Um, 
I've been trying to cut Powell slack all along because he was put into a situation, you know, the bubbles have been going on for such a long time and I kind of assumed they would burst on his watch and he would get blamed. So I've tried to cut him some slack. He's done uh-huh. everything to make me almost regret doing that with, with pandemic. <laughs> um, I think Powell, he would, he would like to be a Volker. He would like to be principled. He would like yeah. to be aggressive and do the right thing. But this financial structure does not allow him to do that because markets will crash. They will crash if if he raised rates like Volcker did. Again, we have a system dominated by market-based finance. It's not the old bank finance uh-huh. of the Volcker era. era. This is derivatives, hedge funds, ETFs. Uh, all of the Wall Street structured finance. I often say contemporary finance, it's almost miraculous as long as it's expanding, as long as credit is expanding, asset prices are inflating, uh, the hedge funds and everyone's putting on more risk and leverage. It works great. This system does not work in reverse because quickly you you have illiquidity, you have dislocation and panic. Uh, So, I think Powell, he's he's just going to, you know, he'll be the cautious tightener because he's not going to have any choice. Yeah, and it probably will be too little too late if I read your your thought process. And Jay, we've had 15 months of inflation above the Fed's target. Right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, and rates today, Fed funds are 75 basis points to 1%. Mm-hmm. I mean... Yeah, rates today should be at four or five. But anyway, yeah, they're they're so late, and the fact they were late just prolonged the manias that we've seen in risk assets and crypto and you know stocks and everything else, and just made made a bad situation much worse. Okay, with just a couple of minutes left, you you mentioned it should be four or five percent. I just heard an analyst say uh, on the internet. I, I can't recall who who he was now, but it, it's somebody that's well known. Uh, and he he was saying he agrees it should be at four or five percent, but he says if we went to four or five percent right now, that is if the bar- government's overall borrowing cost was four or five percent, it would take a while to get there, presumably. But if we got to that level, then we the debt service, the interest that would be payable, that would be paid by the government, would be thirty percent, which is equal to the military budget, and it's also equal to the I think he said the social security budget. So there's ninety percent. Um, and he said that that would start to shake the market's confidence in the Treasury. And his view is that the Fed, one of the considerations is keeping the Treasury credibility out there so that the government can continue to borrow. Uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I cannot disagree. And it's one more reason why you know the Fed is in a dilemma and they're not going to be able to tighten the way they need to tighten to rein in inflation. Um it's the market bubbles. It's it's the Treasury's bubble of debt issuance. Uh, it, you know they've accommodated loose finance for way way too long, and and this is what we're, we we uh, we're left with is is a situation very difficult to control. All right, with thirty seconds, then what do you think? I mean, is there anything where should be people be putting their money? Where are uh, where is your fund? A tactical fund putting? Uh, you know, how are they allocating their capital? A lot of shorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tactical short. We're just short. We're a hedging okay. vehicle for people okay. to hedge. Okay. You know, but uh, you know, I'm a hard asset guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my family, uh, you know, and I, I'm also the strategist at McIlvaney Wealth Management on the long side. Our map mm-hmm. strategies. We like. We love hard. Uh, you know, hard assets, uh, precious metals in particular. Mm-hmm. I also like cash today. 
Mm-hmm. And the best thing we can do, I think, is is save as much money as we can right now, rein in our spending and get ready for, for difficult times, unfortunately. Yeah, good advice. Thank you so much, Doug, for, for, your, uh, for coming on with us and giving us your insights. It's, they're very much appreciated. We'll have to leave it go at that now uh, and, and talk to you again sometime soon, I hope. Thanks so much, Jay. Nice to be with you. All right, folks, we do have to go now. Next week, Eric Coffin will be with me, as, long, as well as Dr. Quentin Henning to talk about Irving Resources, and Michael Oliver will return as well. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 